This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we look at the next portion of Isaiah to see God's message aimed directly at his own people. Yeah, I uh, want to dive into about five chapters here in Isaiah. And for me, as I'm doing this, my prophets are such a hard thing to study and to teach and to look at and to reflect on. For me, the goal is always to try to figure out um, how how do you read this? in a way that's relevant and applicable um, to yourself, that you can find something without yanking a bad hermeneutic, like without trying to make this prop. Cause there's, there are like three pitfalls that I, I typically feel like I encounter when I'm studying the prophets. One pitfall is that I only look at, look at the prophet from this cold academic distance. I only am considering the historical prophet Isaiah and the author. I'm only considering the historical context and the historical audience. And I just kind of stay at arm's length. And I just, I never really wrestle with, but what do I take out of this passage so that I can be changed and, and, and be made new? Um, one of the other pitfalls is that we use the prophets and we weaponize them against other people. So we read these, a lot of us that have like a more, like a, a, a more prophetic personality. Like we hear this and we can, we can see the, the ideologies in our own world. We can see the, the modern day empires and we can, we can, we, we level the curses and the wrath of the prophets kind of directed at, we weaponize it against other people. The third pitfall is that we, we completely internalize. We almost do the opposite of pitfall number one. We we totally forget the historical author. We totally forget the historical audience. And we feel like the words through Isaiah are God speaking directly to us all of this condemnation. So somehow in the midst of this study, the goal is to try to stay true to good contextual hermeneutics, to do the approach of number one, to consider the realities of number two, but to do number three in a healthy way. Like I want to be looking at Isaiah, not just as a exercise in studying history, but I want to look at Isaiah trying to figure out what it is that I can, I can hear and can make me different today as I study, study the prophet. Does that make sense, Brent? Yeah. The balance of trying to find all of these things. Like it's hard to get in the mindset of the original audience. It's sometimes hard not to look at others and think like, oh, this is about them because we're already, we have all of this personal context, all of these yep. ideas floating around and then we read it and it's like a confirmation bias. Yep. And then sometimes we're in a, we're in a bad place personally and we just feel like everything is against us. So trying to untangle all of those different things, understand where we are personally, understand what the world is like around us, understand what the world was like to Isaiah's original audience. It's very challenging to do any of those three. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we probably each, because of our personalities or our circumstances, we lean into one of those three spaces so easily. We just kind of have to be aware of that. And so worth a five minute little intro blurb before we even, because it's hard to teach it. Like it's hard to sit here on a podcast episode and teach Isaiah and really want us to be able to get something out of this, like really be able to consider something. But this whole time I'm like, well, I don't want anybody to feel like we're leveling the words of Isaiah at them. 
But I also want to really provoke those folks that are like, oh, yeah, Isaiah, back then with those people. And I also want to provoke those of us that are like, oh, yeah, dirty, rotten America and <laughs> power and leaders. And this is all about like, like all of these things are swirling as we study the prophets. And uh, yeah, we want to be able to engage that well. And I think the reality is different in session eight than it was in session two when we first looked Ooh, at Isaiah. Yeah, that's good. Back in session two, we said, hold on wait a second before we get to Jesus, wait a second before we get to our modern, like, yep. we're just like trying, trying to get in the mindset of that original audience. But now we've been through Jesus. We've been through church history. We're looking at things in a more practical way. And so we have to try to balance all of these things. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. It's great. Well said. Well said. So we're going to dive in. Uh, we're not going to, we're not going to do verse by verse through five chapters of Isaiah. We're just going to grab some little chunks here. Uh, here and there through each chapter. So let's look a little bit at chapter 28. Um, Brent, and, the, and chapter 28 for me is about the danger of pride, like this whole section. So God's now going to kind of point his attention. So we did a couple episodes. Um, a couple episodes ago, we talked about how, like, this wasn't just about God's people. It's about the whole earth. It's about how God cares about all humanity, we said a couple episodes ago. Now, here we sit and and God now turns his attention to have a conversation again, kind of directly with his own people, a more a more personal, a more narrow audience. This is my people that I have a covenantal relationship. And this whole conversation, the danger starts with a pride, a pride that doesn't let you see the things that you need to see. So let's go ahead and start there in, in Isaiah 28. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, to that city, the pride of those laid low by wine. See, the Lord has one who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm and a destructive wind, like a driving rain and a flooding downpour, he will throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like figs ripe before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. So this, you know, two things came to mind as you read that. I kept hearing, I, I kept hearing echoes of the, of the letter of Smyrna in Revelation. Or perhaps you'd say it the other way around. More appropriately, the letter of Smyrna may be echoing. I never considered this passage, I don't believe, when we did the Smyrna um, episode, which is a short little conversation in session four. Um but if you remember the letter to Smyrna, it's all about the crown, the, the crown of splendor. Smyrna was seen historically as a crown. The city was laid out like a crown. And there were all these references to crowns and and splendor. And uh, I'm now considering like, man, what if this is so a little a little fun homework for anybody that wants to go back to Revelation and the letter of Smyrna? Like what kind of connections do we draw here between between Isaiah 28 and Smyrna potentially? Who knows? I can tell you that we did not read from Isaiah 28 when we did our Smyrna episode. There's the beauty I'm not sure of spreadsheet. If we made any allusions to it, but good spreadsheet always helps us out right there. I like that. Good good spreadsheet for portions of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully I have I have some data for Revelation anyway. Yeah, that's right. Um, a lot of people will email me or ask me questions when you study the prophets about the, the, the reference to Ephraim. Like, why is it like why there's Israel and there's Judah, 
But why is it using this phrase Ephraim? And Ephraim seems to be just one of those poetic references to that northern kingdom, the seat of northern power. Um, that seems to be the reference to, to, to Ephraim. And whether you have, again, do you have multiple authors at play in Isaiah, where some authors like to reference that as Israel, some authors like to reference it as Ephraim? There's a, there's a few different possibilities there, but the prophets seem, not just Isaiah, multiple prophets will seem to to use the image of Ephraim as the seat of, uh, as, a, as a representative for that northern kingdom of Israel, as the seat of power to the north. I looked at Alter's footnote here. This is, this is Robert Alter. Uh, his footnote says, um, Ephraim, the northern kingdom that was wiped out by Assyria in 731 BCE, it is somewhat... Uh, puzzling, it's a somewhat puzzling presence at the beginning of this prophecy, which probably refers to the predicament of the southern kingdom besieged by Assyria 20 years later. Perhaps the complete des- I love this sentence, by the way. Listen to these words. I love Robert Alter and his command of the English language. Listen to this. Perhaps the complete desolation of Ephraim, whose leaders are seen as dissolute, is meant as a portent for Judah. Uh, that's a sentence right there. It's a beautiful mouthful. But but Alter says, perhaps the author is using what has recently happened to Assyria in the audience's mind and kind of porting that in, using it as a portent, porting that in to use it as a representation of the same kind of mistakes that the southern kingdom of Judah is now, is now making. But that's your reference to Ephraim and how it kind of functions prophetically uh yeah i'll also just point out that the net footnote equates ephraim with the northern kingdom and specifically the crown being syria i think the niv said a wreath the the translations go back and forth sometimes it's the wreath sometimes it's the crown oh fascinating so the net says ephraim is the northern kingdom of israel but the crown oh that's juicy the crown being referenced is is assyria yes no, no, no. Ooh. The crown is Samaria. Samaria, excuse me. Okay. I thought they were making the case that they were wearing Assyria's because they kind of like capitulate to Assyrian rule. And I thought you were saying the NET was saying that they were wearing Assyria's power like a crown. And I was like, oh, wow, what a huge extrapolation. <laughs> and it also lumps in priests and prophets among the drunkards, as we'll see uh, in verse seven. But, you know, I like that too, the Samaria as the crown, because if there is a reference there, if there is an interplay between the letter to Smyrna, connecting Smyrna and Samaria could be an interesting play on all kinds of levels. So uh, it's fun. Okay. I like that. Thanks for bringing the NET to the table as always. Uh, <laughs> more things to ponder and wrestle with. Okay. Moving on. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. All right. So this obvious implication that it's, it's not supposed to be our ideology. It's not supposed to be our power, our strategy, our great plans. It's God who wants to be that crown of splendor. It's God that wants to be that thing that, um, that, that we look towards that is shown off. That is the mark of, of beauty and and rightness, zadeka, righteousness, however you want to phrase that, but there's that reference. Go ahead and keep going. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. 
All the tables are covered with vomit, and there is not a spot without filth. Who is it he is trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, to those just taken from the breast. For it is, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there. I was just following along an altar, and I loved uh, verse 10, an altar. He's he's translated it this way. For it's filth, pilth, filth, pilth, filth. I can't even read it. (laughs) It's filth, pilth, filth, pilth, vomit, 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 a little here, a little there. What a great (laughs) translation. Um, This is what we love about altar, and we just keep coming back. Um. Yeah. So, uh, and again, I want to always be like inviting us to reflect, like, what is it? He says, this isn't about babies that haven't been weaned. These are people that should know. These are people that should understand. And it's that pride. It's that arrogance that we're wearing like, like a crown. It's that, it's that haughty, it's that haughty pride that keeps us from being able to see anything, to consider the things. And so you have these images of of beer and wine and, and overindulgence. Cause that's where we're no longer vigilant. We're no longer asking the questions of what God's up to. We know what God's up to, right? I mean, we know, we know, we know theology, we know the Bible, we know the answers. It's that pride and arrogance that is so, so dangerous. Go ahead, Brent. Well, do you have your Hebrew Bible in front of you? Because verse 10 is apparently pretty interesting in the Hebrew. Okay, you, you talked to me about the NET and I'm going to pull it up. Well, it's not NET. This is actually the NIV footnote that tells me. No way. Hey, coming at it. All right. Yeah, the NET does have it as well. And the, the translation is is interesting. I think Alter's translation is is getting more at the spirit of what's going on here. And so what does that NIV footnote say again? It transliterates the Hebrew and says it's probably meaningless sounds mimicking the prophet's words. Oh, oh, hey. All right, Robert Alter, I see you. I would be Elle will have to give us her two cents on that. Um, uh, full of vomit. It's verse, what are we looking at? Verse? Verse 10. Verse 10. All right, I'm pull it open here. Oh, hey, look at that. I see what they're saying. I'm no expert to say that, yeah, totally, that's what's going on. But it, yeah, it's just like, it's going to be phonetically, it's going to be very, very, I'm not even going to attempt to read it because I won't get it right. <laughs> but but uh, that, wow. I'll, I'll yeah. read the transliteration. Sav lasav, sav lasav, kav lakav, kav lakav. Yeah, that, that's exactly, that's exactly right. I'm following right along. Yep. That's, yeah, that's great. Yeah, very interesting. All right. Pretty long footnote in in the NET. NET's translation is, Indeed, they will hear meaningless gibberish, senseless babbling, a syllable here, a syllable there. Interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at the translation, different things. What does it do? Well, the Septuagint doesn't keep that. I'll tell you that much. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, what fun. The poet, the poet prophet at work as usual. All right. All right. Go ahead, Brent. Very well, then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the resting place. Let the weary rest. And this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become, do this, do that, a rule for this, a rule for that, a little here, a little there, that nonsense again. So that as they go, they will fall backward. They will be injured and snared and captured. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. 
you boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Yeah, so so here you see, I mean, I mean, this whole thing is about the danger of our pride and what our pride leads us to. And yet this little section we've pulled out kind of ends with God saying, don't think your pride. I'm not going to be befuddled by your pride. I will find a way to speak to you. I will find a way to get through this pride. This, this foolishness kind of makes for a really poor shield, a really poor shell that I'm going to break through. And I'm going to make sure that we, we have a little conversation, which is really where, I mean, you're going to have the rest of this chapter, but then the next chapter is going to be pointed right at squarely at Jerusalem itself. Um, we're going to see Jerusalem called Ariel. Um, Ariel, which be lion, a reference to a lion. If I, if I know my Hebrew at all, it's going to be the reference to the lion of God, this, this metaphor for Jerusalem. So now God is again, having this very pointed conversation with his people. And he says, I am going to get your attention. So let's, let's jump to the next chapter there and see what God says as he, as he grabs them by the shoulders and shakes them to get their attention. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year, and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you on all sides. I will encircle you with towers, and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. Okay, so here in Isaiah 29, we have this reference to the city of David, the city where David camped. Ariel, Ariel, the city where David camped. Um, what did the, how did the NIV read there? Uh, it said where David settled. The NET says the town David besieged, which is interesting when, when it's being besieged by the Lord. One verse later. Yes. NET says the Hebrew says the town where David camped, and they say the verb probably has the nuance lay siege to, as referenced in verse three. Hmm. And then it says another option is to take the verb in the sense of lived or settled. So kind of a... Yeah, so I, I'm seeing the root word. Now, again, I'm going to defer to L to always come in and fix whatever I say. I see the word chana here, as in like machana. Machana is the place of, it's an encampment. So we talk about Machanadan. So this is Hana. So I would say camped to dwell. Dwell is not going to be the word that like say El is going to want, um, I don't think. But Hana would be camp to camp. Machana would be a place of camping or an encampment. So yeah, I, I like the I like the camp there, NIV. Besiege. Probably it might have those overtones, but it feels like a uh even I know some words that would be used for to seize or to siege. But maybe who knows? But there you go. But when I hear that, and I, I I think of I think of a city of David. It immediately it immediately made me think of another passage about another city of David because there's Jerusalem, the city where David sieged, the city where David camped, the city of David. But there's another city of David. What city is that, Brent? Uh, Bethlehem. Bethlehem would be the city where David's from. So I'm cheating a little bit. I know what verse you want to read. <laughs> That's okay. After all the years that I beat you up in the first few uh, sessions with questions, uh, you're allowed to. You're allowed to cheat. Everybody's going to give you a free pass on that one. <laughs> but but there are these two cities. And I juxtaposed the, the little section you just read with the passage out of Micah. So can you give us Micah chapter 5 and remind us of that passage in Micah about another city of David 
And let's juxtapose these two cities, uh, these two passages with each other. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. Yeah, so if you remember when we when we did that passage before, this passage is about the backwards, upside-down nature of what God's doing. Like, Bethlehem was this, though you are small among the clans of Judah, you, O Beth- Bethlehem Ephrathah, like this city of David, the point of this being the city of David was how, how backwards are we? He was the last of eight brothers. He was, he, he was the small runt. He was the one that wasn't even brought in for the Cinderella prophet's glass slipper moment with like, who's going to be the next king? Like he, everything was backwards in that story. And, and Micah calls us back and says, that's how God works. God raises up people from the bottom. God does things backwards. And this messianic ruler isn't going to come through the, the power. And now you juxtapose that with this other city of David that now sits with all of the pride and the arrogance. It's like the opposite. It's the opposite story from the story of Bethlehem and the story of David. Now we're on the other side of the other city of David, the one that looks impressive and is the big city of David, the powerful city of David, the city of David that everybody wants to talk about. Not the city of David where David came from, not that city of David, but the pride of the city of David. So give us that last section, that first section of Isaiah 29 one more time, and just hear how that sounds set side by side with the passage of Micah. Woe to you, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David settled. Add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Yet I will besiege Ariel. She will mourn and lament. She will be to me like an altar hearth. I will encamp against you on all sides. I will encircle you with towers and set up my siege works against you. Brought low, you will speak from the ground. Your speech will mumble out of the dust. Your voice will come ghost-like from the earth. Out of the dust, your speech will whisper. Uh, you can see that juxtaposition there, the pride versus the humility, the 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 worldly power versus the upside down power. And you can hear this, this city where David is, that David was from versus the city where David ended up, <laughs> you know, the city where David came from versus the city where David settled, the city that raised David versus the city that David seeds, seized that, that whole picture and image there. there. There's a humility that God longs for and a humility that God wants to use. And then there's a pride that leads to our downfall. So go ahead and keep us going. Well, and I think this this reminds me of Deuteronomy. Sure. And the call to remember where you came from. Yes. Micah, Ooh, yep. in, the, in the portion of history where Micah was speaking, they heeded that call and yep. saved themselves from the Assyrians. Absolutely. And now they've lost that plot yet again. The, the call to always be awake and vigilant um, because it just takes a generation. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't even take that. It just takes a little season of history to put us in a completely different place. But your many enemies will become like fine dust, the ruthless hordes like blown chaff. Suddenly, in an instant, the Lord Almighty will come with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with windstorm and tempest and flames of a devouring fire. Then the hordes of all the nations that fight against Ariel, 
that attack her and her fortress and besiege her will be as it is with a dream, with a vision in the night, as when a hungry person dreams of eating, but awakens hungry still, as when a thirsty person dreams of drinking, but awakens faint and thirsty still. So will it be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. So there, obviously, God prophesies, uh, uh, God, Isaiah, however you want to look at this, the impending, imminent, and again, this isn't a future telling crystal ball. It's this thing you're doing is unsustainable. And so this is where it's headed and this is where it's going to end. And like a dream, like a vision, this is, or maybe I might say like a nightmare. Um, This is not going to go well. Let's finish out this little section we have here, Brent. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets. He has covered your heads, the seers. All right. So all these wonderful things, all these systems that we've created, all these constructs that we have, all of these roles that, that we're just sure keep us in, the prophets, the seers, all the uh, this beautiful things that we've built aren't going to help us out. So then we're going to jump ahead to the next chapter here. Um, this next chapter, my, I mean, my subtitle talks about uh, an obstinate nation. So I, I have in here a reference to obstinate stubbornness. Where does our obstinate stuff, because we could learn, like you pointed out, like Micah prophesied in a day where people seem to, in an age when people seem to heed that call and make some proper choices and turn the story around. But we get to these places where, I mean, I'm sure this isn't relevant to us at all today, Brent, but we're obstinate, we're stubborn, we dig our heels in, we've got our ideologies, we've got our worldviews, we know what's right, nobody's going to move us, we're not going to consider anything. And we got a whole chapter here about uh, where that leads and where that heads. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Love those images we had from the desert there. Uh, session one, the shade that you're looking for, the shade you're going to Egypt for that. You're you're doing things that make all kinds of wonderful logical sense. And yet this isn't what I asked of Ahaz a couple of generations ago. This isn't what I invited my people to do. That's not the shade that you're supposed to look for. This is exactly what I've told you not to do. I'm trying to tell a different story than the one that makes sense by the world. Again, I, I feel like there are probably things here we ought to consider before we, you know, hit send on that next social media post, before we craft that wonderful, punchy little meme that we create be careful about where this pride and this stubbornness, this, this stubbornness—I like that word. There you go, stubbornness. <laughs> this, this stubborn obstinance. Where does it take us? Where does it lead us? It's actually that stubborn obstinance that can blind us from the things that we need to learn in that moment. But keep us, keep us moving. I like the NET, uh, not footnote, but the the subtitle. Egypt will prove unreliable. Yeah. Like, how many times do we see God's people try to go to Egypt? <laughs> And then it doesn't give them what they're hoping for. Yeah. And in a practical application for us, how many times do we return to the same things yep. that have hurt us, that have enslaved us, that have whatever, and we just keep trying to go back because it's it's just appealing in whatever way. 
Yeah. So some something to consider for our own lives in, in this case. Yeah, that conventional wisdom that says, hey, this is, I mean, it made sense historically. Like Egypt, of course, Egypt is the one place that never fails, only it, it actually fails all the time. But we kind of we kind of lose that in our conventional wisdom of, oh, we're gonna, I'm going to keep going because this delivers, this delivers. But it doesn't deliver. And uh, yeah, worth noting. I'm going to jump down to verse 8. Go now, write it on a tablet for them. Inscribe it on a scroll that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. For these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions. Leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. I just... It- I read that section. It made me think um, I recently saw a tweet from Beth Moore where she was saying, not only is history going to judge the preachers who failed to speak the truth and to call out our idolatry, history is also going to judge the congregations and the institutions and the churches that wouldn't let them. And it made me think of that phrase of Heschel's, like, few are guilty, all are responsible. Like, we all have a part to play. Um, many of us as, as Bible teachers or pastors or, or whatever, like we know what it's like to want to speak out about some of these things and know what, what did that verse say here? What is altars translation here? I got altar in front of me right now who say to the seers, you shall not see. And to the visionaries, you shall not envision for us true things. <laughs> I do love that phrase. They, they say to the visionaries, you shall not envision for us true things, envision for us false things. Um, we don't want to see, we don't want to hear. Uh, I just thought that was a, um, as is, as is totally on brand for, for Beth Moore these days, just a great provocative thought provoking treat, a tweet there. Um, I guess they're not tweets anymore. What do we call them? Posts? <laughs> Goodness. I think we were supposed to call them X's. <laughs> it's, it's all ridiculous. Uh, well, uh, well, speaking of foolish worldly wisdom, let's go ahead and keep reading. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love. I like the the juxtaposition between uh, what what we just read and then what's coming up. Uh, they say, "Leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel." Yes. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says: because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. Absolutely. And so that message just kind of continues. And yet, I'm not going to call it a sprinkling of hope. I'm trying to get away from that this time around. But God does make sure that in the middle of this conversation, he has this moment of like, but there will be an opportunity um, this is not the end. It doesn't have to be the end of your story. You can choose to keep going down this path. You can make this the way that your story continues. You can make this the end of your story if that's what you choose. But but it doesn't have to be the end of your story because a few verses later, God's going to kind of take a turn and he's going to he's going to somewhat change his tone. Now, I put in the notes there, Brent, uh, verse 19. I think I want you to do verse 18. How about you jump up to verse 18 and and add that to our little passage here next. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. 
Blessed are all who wait for him. People of Zion, who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. See, in the middle of all this, like the prophet keeps insisting on God's commitment to mercy. God keeps insisting on God's commitment to to grace. Like there, there is a thing behind the thing for God. God isn't just out here red-faced, snot dripping out of his nose, just wanting to just tear up this whole world with wrath. God is trying to put things back together. And there will be consequences for this crazy pride. There will be there will be a wrath that is a part, a deen, to use session two language, that is a part of God's mishpat, a part of his restorative justice, a part of his righteousness. He may use a little bit of discipline, but it's because there's this other thing. That is, and so there will come a day where he will rise up in his mercy, and there will be an opportunity to respond, and it keeps going. It's not just those few verses, but give us the next little bit, Brent. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. He will also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground and the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and donkeys that work the soil will eat fodder and mash spread out with fork and shovel. I suppose that's supposed to be a good thing. Fodder and mash doesn't sound particularly funny to me. But... <laughs> Not in the English. Maybe, maybe it sounds more, <laughs> you know, song-esque. Yes. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. The moon will shine like the sun and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days when the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds he afflicted. All right, so we, we had almost like three chapters of God's warning, three ch- almost three, two and a half chapters of God's woe, two and a half chapters of God calling out our pride and our, our how we make, how that pride blinds us, our, our, our obstinate stubbornness, like God has called out, God's called out the futility of where our own strength, when we refuse to be a part of this thing that God, and then God's offers us at the end, like this half chapter of like, but, but there's mercy. There's an opportunity to come back, to return to Chuva, to say yes. And so then you move to chapter 31 and there's now this like new call to consider in light of this, in light of like the futility of where your story is headed. Held next to the offer, the the invitation of God, where does, there's like a call to make a, make a choice, make a decision. I think it was one of our last episodes. We said, the choice is yours. Here's this choice again. What are, what are you going, where does your allegiance lie? Go ahead and give us some chapter 31, Brent. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against that wicked nation, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help will stumble. 
those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. Yeah, I heard a teacher once talk about, you know, when you read about horses and chariots, in our world, you can think about tanks and Humvees. Um, and I've never forgotten that reference because it really helps me when I'm reading about like, like horses and chariots. And you kind of think about these images and these pictures and it's historic and it's biblical. And But when you when you think about what those things were in their day, these these symbols of of some kind of power. Um, you go down to Egypt, you trust in their horses, and we're talking about socio-political realities, not just poetic images on a flannel graph, but like somebody made the point once, like the reason why sometimes it's so hard, particularly for our listeners who are Western Americans, Westerners and Americans is what I should probably say, um, it's hard for us to read the Bible because we are, as Americans, a part of the largest superpower in the world. And so we're the ones with the chariots and the horses. We're the ones with the tanks and the Humvees. We're the ones with with the with the socio-political militant power. We're the ones with the superpower presence. And it's hard for us to hear these words spoken to a group of people who are not. This isn't this isn't a group of believers that have these things. That they're wanting to go run and put and rely on Egypt. They're wanting to go run and put their trust in those things because they don't have the. So the Bible's always speaking to these people that are on the underside, the underside of these power structures. And when they're in trouble, they they don't get to like kind of blend their faith with this other socio political reality, which 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 is also a struggle. By the way, it's a different kind of struggle. It's a struggle that we have, but it's always tricky to remember that as we read these words of Isaiah, we're on the other side of these references. And it's, it's, it's hard to remind ourselves. They're trying to figure out, do I go make a sociopolitical alliance with the people that have the power to help me physically? Or do I say no to those ways? Cause I'm going to want to say yes to God's ways. And when we see that, I think, I think we're all going to realize I would not, I mean, I don't know about you, Brent. I would not, this isn't going to be an easy decision for me. I'm not sure I'm going to look at this as a citizen, as a normal person who has a job and a nine to five and a whatever, and just be like, oh yeah, I trust the story. Yeah, I trust the story. It's a good, it's a good little tagline. Like I'm, I'm going to have a hard time saying yes to the thing that Jesus is inviting me to, that God's inviting us in Isaiah to consider where our allegiance lies. Because I kind of put my allegiance in both things. I have the luxury of doing that in my reality. And and that, that can be tricky. Yeah, it's kind of funny considering the current events. Like, it's it's so weird to think about the warfare that's going on in Ukraine or, or Israel. Like, they're actually using tanks right now. This isn't... Right. right. This isn't some, like, distant past for us either. Like, it is present day stuff that's happening right and 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 yeah you could get real specific with that in some practical ways like where did they get those tanks from you know and 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 that's not a condemnation i don't know i am not going to sit in the seat of god and make the judgment of where they did something right or where they did something wrong or what the reality in the world like i'm not making any poetic statements about the mess of our world today but you can see how real this stuff becomes like we live in a world today where the the socio political reality of our globe is one of social socio political superpowers, and who you've made it like we even talk about 
the peace of the Middle East, which we all know isn't peace, but that is kept because of these weird alliances that we have made with this group of chariots and that group of horses. Um, and, and we fund. It's just so you can see the bankrupt. Like this doesn't lead to redemption. This thing that we're all a part of, it doesn't put the world back together. Um, to be the largest arms dealer on the planet, not the way of shalom. Uh, and I don't know what the answer is. I don't have any suggestions for that. But you can see these words of God, this wisdom of God and the prophets, very, very applicable. Still true 2,000 years later. Um, and very easy for just to be like, ah, but that's, I mean, that's not realistic. And yet God says, be very, very careful about what that does to the human heart. Because that... And, and and yes, we, we've seen where that leads, no matter which side, quote unquote, you take in any of these conflicts, no matter how you see the sociopolitical realities that are at play here, uh, nobody wins through these, through this worldly wisdom. It, it just leads to more and more woe and more and more downfall and more and more destruction. This really isn't all that out of date at all. Okay, moving on then. <laughs> This is what the Lord says to me, as a lion growls, a great lion over its prey. And though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. And I always thought that passage is in Jeremiah. And I was wrong. I've always said that passage was in Jeremiah. And I got ready for our podcast today. And I was like, oh, look, that passage is in Isaiah. Huh. Is it not also in Jeremiah, perhaps? It could be, but I think I was just wrong. Chances <laughs> are good I was just wrong. But but I do love that because God's not God's not intimidated by these situations. Uh, like like when you hear Marty poetically talking about our sociopolitical realities today, and you're like, come on, that's just not realistic, Marty. Yeah, yeah but I, I, I don't know. But God's not. God's not intimidated by our superpowers. Like God's not like a like a hungry lion just hunched over its prey. It doesn't care that shepherds have come out called against it. It's fine. It's fine. God is fine. God knows exactly how this world operates. And and just a great reminder. And so then we can jump over to chapter 32. Because this is the image. This is and this is the passage we talked about before in session two, one of my favorites. This is what it looks like. Okay, Marty, so what are you suggesting? What are you suggesting we should do? What should we give our time to? What should shalom look like? If it's not going to look like all these, all this self-preservation, all these alliances and allegiance conversations with Egypt and, and, and where we put our, where we put our trust and, and what, what power looks like. So what does it look like? Let's go to Isaiah 32 and be reminded, Brent, go ahead. See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Obviously, one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite teachings, we should link in the show notes, Brent, our Isaiah um, episode where we where we talk about this passage, so I don't have to do it all over again today. But we talked about how there's a king. For us, that king might be Jesus as Jesus followers. But then there are rulers, plural. And, and we are those rulers. And so there is a partnership. There is a physical participation in the kingdom. 
And and give me that give me that second phrase again. The rulers will give me that verse two. Actually, as I'm looking at it, read me verse two once more. What what will these rulers be about? Each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. So these will be positive present presences. These will be refreshing, protective, a refuge, a stream of water in a desert. This is what we're called to. We're not called to chariots and war horses and strategies and self-protection. And we're called to give ourselves for the good of other people. That's what kingdom looks like. That's what God's always called his people to. Well, and I think back to, you know, I think it was chapter 30 where where they were trying to get those things from Egypt and Egypt was not providing them or were not, not providing right. them in a way that, that was helpful to them right. in the end. Yep. Oh, and by the way, that episode that we reference is episode 136. Ah, session four. Yep. Probably the conversation in X, I bet it. Indeed. Okay. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The fearful heart will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. No longer will the fool be called noble nor the scoundrel be highly respected. And what's the impetus for it? What, what, what's caused all this? What's caused the eyes to be open, Brent? What has caused the ears of the deaf to hear? What's caused people to understand? What has been the cause of the world being put? Was it was it the right superpower winning the right war? Was was that what caused this to happen, Brent? It's the right king. Uh, oh, place. oh, and even maybe even more so. Well, and, and the rulers that, ah. that follow him and, and are loyal to him. Ah, so it's not even the right king being in power, because that's always been the case, right? The king's always been, whether it was Jesus for us or, or, or Adonai, God for ancient Judah and Israel, like the king's always been in power. The question was whether or not his people were going to join him in physically participating and mm. partnering with the Shalom. He was, were they going to be a shadow and a shelter? In a storm, a refuge in the storm, were they going to be a stream of water in the desert? It's being the stream of water. It's being the refuge in the storm. It's being the shadow in the middle of the desert. That's what that's what brings healing. That's what causes the blind to see. Then the blind will see. Then the deaf will hear. Then the mute will speak. Then they will understand. When we finally say yes to the thing that God's wanting to do, when we finally give of ourselves to share and to love and to show mercy and, and hospitality and generosity, Love would be the word that we use in the New Testament. Love. It's like it all hangs on love. Give us give us the next little bit. Yeah, and I should clarify before I move on. I did not mean that God was not in charge at some point. More that the people acknowledge him as sure. king as opposed to something else. Yes. Well said. Hopefully that's clear, but just in case. Just in case. For fools speak folly, their hearts are bent on evil. They practice ungodliness and spread error concerning the Lord. The hungry they leave empty, and from the thirsty they withhold water scoundrels use wicked methods they make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies even when the plea of the needy is just but the noble make noble plans and by noble deeds they stand all right so there's two groups there's there's the righteous and the just there's zedekah and mishpat there's a king who will rule in righteousness and rulers that will rule in justice and then there's fools and fools that will rule in injustice and and there are these two groups the, the foolish and the righteous. And again, so that leads us to the same juxtaposition. And that I love that last phrase, that famous verse that, you know, no, the, the noble, noble deeds. Give me that last verse one more time because I'm going to butcher it if I try to quote it. But the noble make noble plans 
and by noble deeds they stand. All right, so will we be a part of the noble, the valorous? Will we be a part of this thing that God's wanting to build? Or will we be like those fools? The choice, again, is ours. And so we jump to this last chapter for today. And we're just going to read a little bit out of that because this this is that call. The choice is ours. What, for now, we get to choose. In this moment, we get to choose which party, which story we're going to be a part of. Which which one of these groups we want to say yes to. Which And this choice is still probably ours today. But let's hear it through the through the lens of Isaiah 33. Woe to you, destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, betrayer, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. At the uproar of your army, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. Your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts. Like a swarm of locusts, people pounce on it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with his justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Some good verses there at the end. He will fill... He will fill his land. He'll fill Jerusalem. He'll fill the city with justice and with righteousness. Go ahead and jump to the end of the chapter and see how this vision kind of concludes the closing the closing images here. Look on Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its ropes broken. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them. No mighty ship will sail them. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Your rigging hangs loose. The mast is not held secure. The sail is not spread. Then an abundance of spoils will be divided, and even the lame will carry off plunder. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill, and the sins of those who dwell there Will be forgiven. It's pretty good. Has a pretty good image, and so the choice is ours, and we get to choose how we. How do we believe? How do we believe that this image, this this fulfillment comes? Do we think this comes because we have the biggest army, because we're the strongest, because we win? Is that how we build the world where our kids play safely in the streets, where everyone sits under their own vine and their own fig tree? Is that how this image of Jerusalem, Zion, the great city of party and feasting and festival, does it come because we're victorious? Or does it come because that's what God's building through generosity and hospitality and self-sacrifice and service to others and love and mercy and forgiveness? How do we really believe? And I think it's at this point when we really start to frame it and phrase it like that at the end of our conversation here today, these five chapters of Isaiah, I think we, I think we're probably confronted with the problem because I think we give lip service to God's way, God's plan, God's design. And we practically swear our allegiance to the things that we quote, no work. Like we know these things work. Um, and that's, that's what I'm confronted with in today's conversation, in today's episode. What, what do I really believe brings the kingdom of God 
Do I believe it happens because I win? I win the war. I win the battle. I win the power struggle. And because I'm on top, I build the right world. Or is it God building the right world? And we're trusting in his design to get us there. I find that to be very challenging. The tent imagery is really interesting to me. Sure. Because at this point, they've had a permanent temple. Yeah. And and then this vision of how things will be is supposed to be, yet again, a tent. And it won't be moved. It won't be broken. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. But it's still a tent. Golly, I like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. Makes me wonder. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I've never really thought much on that verse and how much it could be saying there, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. This image of going back, like stepping away from this imperial power and this big house with gold you had to make me and going back to the days where we, and again, it's not moving. Like you said, it's a tent not to be moved. It's there, but it's a tent nonetheless, because that's who God is kind of upside down, kind of going back to the, the city where David is from versus the city where David settled. The house that David knew versus the house that David built for God. So I do love that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little backwards. Plenty to consider and wrestle with. I like reading the the bigger chunk where we can see some of those things that come in like shade. Yeah. And know like, oh, they were just seeking that shade in Egypt. Yeah. So yeah, the, the value of the value of larger chunks of scripture. Yeah. So let's do the exact opposite next next episode and just do a small <laughs> little chunk and screw that all up. Well, no, I have some ideas for that. <laughs> all right, good. Good. <laughs> well, we'll see them there. All right. That'll do it for this episode. You can go to BamaDiscipleship.com, find the show notes. Um, I might even try to pull up that Beth Moore tweet. I made a note of that. So if you want to get into the Beth Moore, um, whatever, whatever you call that was going on. But all of that will be in the show notes. You can find groups there. All of our upcoming events are there. You can use the contact page to get in touch with us. Thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.